So it's been a while. Uh, we had, um, we've had a few weeks. Uh, we had Easter. We had a uh, week I was gone. Uh, then last week, I uh, preached a sermon that I was preaching for the installation service at Tate's Creek. Uh, so we are back in Genesis. We are back looking at Abraham. And uh, we are in uh, chapter 18. Uh, but we've been with Abraham from chapter 12 through chapter 17. And we've seen a man whose faith looks a lot like ours, haven't we? And we've seen it. It's inconsistent. He's got good days. He's got bad days. You'll think back to chapter 12. He really starts out pretty strong, doesn't he? I mean, God calls him to do something uh, pretty costly. It's going to cost him uh, his own wealth. It's going to cost him his culture. It's going to cost him his connection with his family. And he leaves and goes where God has called him. So he starts out strong. But things turn downward pretty quickly. The second half of chapter 12, he goes down into Egypt and uh, he sells or he, he, he allows his wife to go, uh, Sarah, to go into the house of Pharaoh to save his own neck. Not a good move. He lies about his relationship with her, saying it's his sister, and then puts Sarah in great danger. So it's a bad day. Good day followed by a bad day. And then you see him turn around pretty quickly with his relationship with Lot. He, he, uh, he, he gives Lot the better portion of the two pieces of land. He goes and he saves Lot from four powerful nation-states. It's risky, but he loved him. It was a good day. Then you have Abraham and Sarah in chapter 16, and they arrange for Abraham to be with one of Sarah's maidservants, and he gets her pregnant. Bad day. But through all these ups and downs, you see God remain faithful to Abraham. God initiates his relationship with Abraham in chapter 12. He confirms the relationship in chapter 15. He visualizes the relationship in chapter 17. It's remarkable. See, no matter how erratic Abraham is in his faith, God remains altogether stable. It's a journey for Abraham. I think it's safe to say that Abraham's faith is not real clean, but it has grown. He really has come to an accurate understanding of who he is and who God is. He's participating in the life that God has offered to him, at least to a degree. But his wife, the heiress of the promises, Sarah, she has not come to the place where she's participating in the life of God. So God wants her to participate, and that's why this passage, chapter 18, is here. It's to get Sarah where Abraham is. Let's read the passage together, verse 1 of chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. 
The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. It's interesting here, isn't it? I mean, Abraham has gained some spiritual sensitivity. Somehow he's able to recognize that among these three visitors, God has appeared to him. And he's eager. He's eager to to host God in this way. He offers them food and water there in verse 4. He offers to wash their feet. He offers them rest. And now Abraham is the consummate host. He's hurrying to try to make God a meal with this abundance of bread, three sihas of flour. He's making this meal with veal and curds and milk and It's a feast, isn't it? It's a feast for five people. It's a lot of food for just him and Sarah and these three visitors. We're not real sure who these three visitors are, except that God has shown up in a person. And really, it's pretty shocking God would do this, isn't it? I mean, this is the only time in the Old Testament where God ever eats with a person. In this passage, chapter 18, he's not appearing with just his voice, he's not appearing as some abstract sign like he did in chapter 15 with the smoking pot and the flaming sword. He's showing up as a person, and this communicates the kind of relationship that Abraham and God had with one another. It was intimate, and it was gracious, and you might even be able to say that Abraham was God's friend. I mean, that's what James 2.23 says. So 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7 is what Isaiah 41, 8 says, that Abraham was God's friend. He's come a really long way, but Sarah's got a ways to go. And we do see Sarah. We see her helping Abraham host. She's making the bread in the other room. And while she's making bread, she overhears this conversation between God and Abraham. And she hears them inquire of her, where's Sarah? Then she hears them promise that she's going to have a son in a year. And she's heard this song and dance before. She's heard that she's going to have a son at one day in the future. And even prior to them participating in the life of God in chapter 12, Sarah was already up in age. She was already heartbroken over her barrenness. But then even her barrenness, even at the age that she was at, even at the age of 65, when she first got the promise, she had been heartbroken. And now she's been waiting for 23 years. And she's not become pregnant. It's got to be make matters worse in many ways that she's received this promise because she is already heartbroken over her barrenness. And in verses 11 and 12, she lists the good reasons she has on why she doesn't believe and God's promise for a son for her. Do you see it? Verse 11 and 12, it says, she says she's old. At this point, she's 89. 
She says that, she, that the way of women has passed from her, meaning she's postmenopausal. And then it says that she has no pleasure, meaning that her and Abraham aren't sexually active anymore. So from a natural point of view, she's procreatively dead. She's accepted her barrenness as normal. She thinks that this whole matter of having a child is absurd. It's so absurd that she laughs. And this isn't the laugh that expresses joy. It's the laugh that comes from something being laughable. It's a scoff. I mean, maybe she had some hopes of having a baby 23 years ago when God first made his promise, but surely she does not have that hope now. Do you see what Sarah's become? Sarah's become a cynic. I don't know if you know how cynicism works, but it happens over time. It's this gradual process of a loss of wonder. It's coming to a place where one resigns that hope is a fool's errand. And cynicism is just something that affected Sarah or people in ancient days. It's a part of our lives, too, because it's part of the human condition. I mean, think about it. Think about our lives, how much is affected by science and technology. And as we're in this world of science and technology, we accept that they have made us, they've given us a worldview that, where we can explain everything naturally. Anything that smells like transcendence can be explained as an evolutionary development. Everything that smells of transcendence sounds like a social construct to us. So we live in this world, this world of science and technology, we live in a world that squashes wonder. But no matter how much you try to squash wonder, you can't escape our hearts yearning for it. See, you and I, we, we were created with this appetite for transcendence. And when we, we, we showcase our humanity, when we feed this appetite with visions of something that's bigger than our little micro-universes, Here's what happens when you refuse to enter that reality, when you refuse to feed your appetite for transcendence, you end up where Sarah ends up. You do end up a cynic, but it's actually much worse. Do you see what happens to her? Do you see where cynicism has led? Look at verse 12. In verse 12, Sarah says, look at me. I'm all worn out. I'm good for nothing. So sad. She hates herself. She believes that God, nor anyone else, for that matter, could ever possibly love her. So what does God do with Sarah? How does he treat her, this cynic, this one who laughs at what she thinks is laughable? This one who gives all these reasons that make good sense to her on why she can't have a child. What does God do with her? Does he push her? toward belief and shame her or threaten her? Does he sympathize with her and give her permission to be where she is? Does he sympathize with her by understanding her predicament? Which is it? Does he push or give permission? You kind of see he does both, doesn't it? Doesn't he? I mean, he does push her. He challenges her cynicism. He states very clearly that she's going to have a child. And then he confronts her lie. You know, he, he confronts her about her cynical laugh. And when he does, she denies it. And God refused to accept her denial. And he states very clearly there at the end where we all giggled and said, yes, you did laugh. So he's pushing her. 
But he gives her permission. You see how he gives her permission? I mean, he could have been much harsher with her in her inquiry about her laughter. He could have attacked her for her dishonesty. He could have outright rejected her at the end of our passage, but he doesn't. Instead, he rebukes her, and he rebukes her with kindness and gentleness. He responds to her by asking her a question in an attempt to stoke the flames of her imagination. He wants to awaken her imagination. He wants to awaken her sense of awe, and he asks her, is anything too hard for me? I mean, other translations say, is anything too wonderful for me? Because God wants something for Sarah. He wants Sarah to know that he delights in doing the impossible. He wants Sarah to know that he delights in doing what is marvelous. He wants Sarah to know that he delights in doing the extraordinary. He wants her to believe that he can do the impossible. I mean, essentially he's saying, I can do more for you, Sarah, than you can ever imagine. I can fill your life with wonder. I can change your laugh from being one of a cynic to one of being a joyful participant. And that's exactly what God does. I mean, you get to Genesis 21, and we will here in just a couple weeks, and you see that Sarah laughs again. She laughs a second time, but the laugh this time is joyous. It's not that of a cynic. It's the laugh that comes at the birth of her son, Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? Laughter. So, brother and sister, this morning, what is it that you think is too hard for God? Where have you become a cynic? Where would you laugh at God if he told you what he was going to do? Maybe it's this thing that we find in our text. Maybe the thing that seems too hard for you is this whole business of having a child. Maybe the reason having a child is hard for you to imagine is because you want to have a spouse before you have a child and God's not delivering for you. Or maybe you're married like Abraham and Sarah are here too and God won't seem to come through for you by allowing you to bring a baby into your family. Maybe that's what seems impossible for you this morning. Maybe what seems impossible for you this morning is your relationship with money. I saw this, this, um, this study was done by uh, UCLA. It's been going on for over 50 years, and it's called the American Freshman National Norms. And every year for 50 years, they've been asking students to rank 20 life goals. Some of them are lofty and aspirational, and some of them are very pragmatic. Some of the lofty aspirations among these 20 are becoming a community leader, creating artistic pieces, raising a family. One of the more pragmatic ones is having lots of money. And you rank all these, 1 to 20, and you you give them scores that, that, that range anywhere from not important to essential. And over the last 50 years, what was at the top of those were things like those aspirations. But now... The most popular one with the highest score is making money. Today, more than 80% of all students, not just at UCLA, but across our country, the number one response is that being very well off financially is essential or very important. 80%. 
Another study out of the University of Chicago confirms the study, the, 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 what, the findings of what's found at the study at UCLA. There, they've been polling adults for 25 years on what's important to them, and they've seen a gradual decline in Americans who view patriotism, religion, parenting, or community involvement as anything of importance. The only priority of those that they test that has grown over the last 25 years is money. So it's clear. I mean, we as Americans, particularly those of us who are educated Americans, we find ourselves immersed in a world where being content with what we have sounds about as crazy as having a baby at the age of 89. We just don't see a way out of the rat race. We don't see a way out of the cycle of accumulating debt or climbing the corporate ladder or working too much or making more than our parents. These are all things that are just foregone conclusions that we have accepted as a part of the reality of life. But what if these things aren't? I mean, what if you could live below your means? What if you could cap your standard of living? What if you could get out of debt? What if your biggest line item wasn't spending or saving? What if your biggest line item was giving? Sounds crazy. Laughable even, right? Maybe that's not what seems laughable to you. Maybe what seems laughable to you, what seems impossible, is having a healthy view of sexuality. I mean, I think... There's these two erroneous messages that we have about our sexuality. One comes from the church and one comes from our culture. The one from our culture puts our sexuality at the very core of who we are. We we can define nearly all of our life with our sexuality. It says we should pursue our sexual desires and to not do so would make us less than human. That's what our culture says. The other message we get is from the church and it's just as erroneous and it Most of its messaging views sexuality as something dirty, and it leaves us with a view of our bodies and sex that's overly prudish. So because of these two erroneous messages, most of us, we live with an enormous amount of shame over our bodies. We live with an enormous amount of guilt over our past. We live with an enormous amount of powerlessness of our sexual desires not being compulsions. We live with an enormous amount of pain, as many of us have been used for others' sexual pleasure. See, our sexuality, being whole, seems impossible, doesn't it? So impossible that you might laugh the laugh of Sarah. But maybe it's not wholeness in regards to your sexuality. Maybe it's not contentment with money that seems impossible. Maybe it's becoming a person of prayer. I read a book recently called A Praying Life, one of my favorite books. I just read it again because I needed to. Uh, It's written by a guy named Paul Miller. Paul Miller's got a bunch of kids, and he tells a story of doing a science project with his seventh grade daughter. And uh, she's decided that her science project is going to measure the bacteria levels in a local stream. I really can't imagine a seventh grader wanting to do that, but his did. So uh, they... Neither of them knew much about how to do this. They didn't know anything about it. So they were really careful to follow the directions that were given in the testing kit. They were kind of nervous about it. They were being very careful. And because of that, they prayed. And after they finished the test, his daughter had to go back and record each step that they had done to measure these levels. And so she wanted to make sure she got it right. So she asked her dad and said, Dad, what did we do first again? What was that first step that we did? Paul Miller said, well, we prayed. And she said, I can't write that. 
<laughs> I can't write that for my report, my science report. And he said, why not? We prayed. She said, Dad, that's not how it works. They don't want us to, they don't want to know that. And he tells the story, and he's just kind of talking about how secularism has, has, has gotten into our everyday life. And I think it's a good story on that thought. But for me, I read the story, and I thought, if I were Paul Miller, and I was with my seventh grade daughter or son, and I'm helping them with their science project, I don't think I would have ever thought to pray. I think I just would have followed the directions and done it. And that's pretty much how I live my whole life. That's even how I do ministry most of the time is aim, fire. Be decisive, hope for the best. It's just so ingrained in me that being a person of prayer, that's what seems impossible. And I would suspect I'm not the only one. See, brother and sister, whether you're skeptical of being content with money, whether you're skeptical over being able to live into a healthy sexuality, whether you're skeptical of, of, of having your knee-jerk response to life be that of prayer, you need to know, and I need to know, that my skepticism and your skepticism is unfounded. See, what's happened is Jesus has risen from the dead. And if God can raise from the dead, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then changing you is a piece of cake. Nothing has ever been more possible in the history of the world than Jesus coming back from the dead. I mean, his body was lifeless. He wasn't just asleep. I mean, he had no heartbeat. If you were to touch his body those three days, it was cold. If you were to see his body there on the third day, it was turning colors. And in some ways, he's more than dead here. I mean, remember, Jesus, he, he died having the sin of the world laid on his shoulders. He died having experienced the wrath of God on your behalf and mine. So for him to raise from the dead is outside of any plausibility structure. Him rising from the dead is way more impossible than an 89-year-old woman having a baby. It's really laughable in a natural sense that Jesus could. But it happened. And brother and sister, if you are in Christ, the one who has raised Jesus from the dead, then you have access to that resurrection power. You really can change, even if it seems impossible. Because what God wants to do is that he wants to make you someone who, who, who laughs the laugh of Sarah at the beginning, cynical laughs, and he wants to replace them with laughs of joy. Brother and sister, is anything too hard for God? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, I do pray you would be with us in our cynicism, Lord. You wouldn't give up on us. Lord, we know that you come to us like you do to Sarah. You come to us and you've rebuked us here this morning. You do it with gentleness. You do it with kindness. And you want us to lift up our heads and know that you're good. Lord, we don't know why whatever we yearn for, we, we, that we so badly want, that we've tried to squash those desires and we've become cynics. We don't know why you haven't delivered on that. But one reason we know that's not true is not because you don't love us. You do love us. And you proved it at Calvary. And so, Lord, I pray you would lift up our eyes uh, to Calvary here as we take this meal. We pray these things in your name. Amen.